Hey, Screen Thought Lovers, welcome to this week's podcast. And we're going to have Elizabeth back again. Yay, Liz. Everyone loves you, Liz. Well, hi. It's so nice to be back. Uh, I still don't believe you, but I'll, I'll keep going with it. <laughs> yeah, you just keep just going wave. with it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay, but just some comments from last week's podcast that we did on Queen's Gamut. Did you know the Queen's Gamut has taken off? It, it's, yeah. it's still Netflix number one show. Like, amazing, right? My mother texted me that she's watching it. So that means it's reached ah. the masses. Did she listen to our podcast? She said she was going to listen to it after she watched the show. And Excuse I was like, there's me? no spoilers in it, but that's fine. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, we have a couple of thoughts and questions and, and uh, things that I thought I'd bring up. So let's get to that right away. So this woman is, I believe you pronounce her name, Echoterine, but I'm not sure. But so if I've butchered it, I apologize. Love your podcast on the Queen's Gamut. Do you guys remember the episode where Russians talk about Elizabeth said that she is not at all an important player. The only unusual thing about her is really her sex. And even that's not unique in Russia. There's Nino Gapriochevnisli. I'm sure I butchered that. Well, I'm proud to say that Nino is a real life person. She is Georgian. It's a little country between Europe and Asia. I am Georgian too. One of the best women chess players who won women's chess world champion five times, exclamation point. I had no idea. Did mm -hmm. you? And she is the first woman who was awarded the five title grandmaster. After the Queen's Gamut released, most critic and chess players say that the biggest real life reference of Elizabeth Harmon is actually Nino. Proud that my country has such an amazing women's chess player. Please let your listeners know. I think that's amazing. It is It is one of the few areas that I think Russia is probably a little bit more progressive on than we are is sexism, <laughs> oddly. Uh, everything else. True? Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well, women, yeah. women work front lines. Women flew in World War II. Night witches are a pretty famous group of women who did wreak havoc on the Nazis. You know, they yeah. had female cosmonauts bef long before we had female astronauts. Yeah, but they, they also put dogs in space and left them there. I mean, so. I'm not saying it's all good, Chris. I'm just saying that, the, you know, they, yeah. sexism front, they seem to be maybe a little bit more open-minded than sometimes we can be. <laughs> well, all I tell you is I had no idea. And it's nice to know that, that she actually is a person. What I wanted to do, and I sent it off through somebody else, I want to ask the author of the book if he knew about her. Because he wrote the book in the early 80s, right? Isn't yeah. that right? Yeah. Okay. So he wrote the book in the 80s. I don't know that she would have been around then. But either way, I'm glad that she exists. And I'm glad that there's someone that mirrors her. So that's great. All right. Then Paula says, the Queen's Gambit is the best thing I've seen on the small screen or big screen all year. Thank you for reviewing it. My obsession. I guess the overriding theme is very much feminist and female empowerment, an independent woman in a man's world. One of the great joys of this series is that Beth is not defined by her relationship with men. She doesn't even find them that interesting in the end. Do you agree? I don't know if I agree with that, actually. I don't either. Yeah. I think so much of her character is defined by her relationship with men. And I think that that's, yeah. that's actually in and of itself anti-feminist she certainly is a woman in a man's world. I think that's the entire point of the story. But I think in that, that is the central theme of the story that kind of makes it 
anti-feminist? Does it make it anti? I don't know that it makes it anti-feminist, but it certainly doesn't feel like it's like a feminist, you know, coup for us. But I, I, I think though that there were a number, I think one of the reasons maybe Paula wrote that and maybe, you know, sometimes I watch something and I don't even know how I'm being affected of it. But remember when she's in the department store and she runs into the woman who was the cool girl in high school and, mm-hmm. and she's got a baby and clearly her life is not so good with a guy. Yes. Okay, Cause the bottom of the pram is filled with booze. <laughs> Hello. Yes. Okay. She also runs into the woman who was her first opponent mm-hmm. who comes to see her. Remember when she'd gotten her first menstrual yeah. period and everything. And that woman said, I came just because you went on and did it. And she says, Oh, you know, are you here to play? And she goes, no, I'm in medical school. Mm-hmm. And I thought there is a lot of really strong feminist subliminal messaging that I love in this film. Sure. You know, I think a lot of the women in this film really in the end show us the downside or the upside either way, you know, I mean, in her birth mother at the beginning, tortured by all of this, not okay. Really was her demise the man? We don't really even know, you know, they lived in that awful trailer, et cetera. But I just feel like this is a really good feminist film because it shows both sides in so many different directions, you know? Yeah. I feel like there's so many undertones about mental health in the show. And maybe I was looking to that more so than the feminism when I was watching it because I I had so many questions about what she was struggling with, where it came from, you know, what her mother was struggling with. Was this, you know, a runs in the family situation? And they don't answer really any of those questions. (laughs) So I I found myself struggling with those far more than, and I kind of loved that it was just kind of part of her story that she happened to be a woman in a man's world. It was never important to her that she was a woman in a man's world. And I, I loved that that's how they handled it. I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. And then the last one I want, I'm going to read is Rachel, who says, didn't you think the janitor in the basement was going to rape her in some way? Has the Me Too movement taken over every single thing, I think? <laughs> what does she mean by that? I, I know what she meant. When I first saw her go down to the basement with the erasers, and he's sitting there at the table playing chess by himself. If I hadn't seen the previews, which always ruin any series or movie, because we know way more information than we should going into the beginning of it. He did look menacing. You know, he did look like sure he was going to be vulnerable. I certainly think that we, I think we addressed this in, when we reviewed it. Yeah. That they kind of acknowledged that it had the opportunity to go down that path and just kind of sped by it and took it in a totally different direction, which I loved because we didn't spend that much time on worrying whether or not this was a good guy or not. And that's not what the story was about. You know, it wasn't about, and in all honesty, I think we talked about this too. He was the only parental figure to her. He was the only person who really looked out for her well-being in the entirety of the story who was of an adult age. Right, absolutely. Yep utilized her to their advantage. I don't know what she means by has Me Too movement ruined everything. I think it's like, it's like what she's saying in my opinion is that whenever you see a man in a menacing environment where a woman could be vulnerable, then something bad's going to happen. Oh, interesting. I mean, we've talked about this before. I'm a millennial. I don't see that as the Me Too movement having ruined everything. I see that as reality. So... (laughs) (laughs) When a woman is in a compromising position with a man, there's every possibility that it could go bad. Yeah, 
Yeah, well, anyway, we love the comments. Thanks for listening and thanks for sending them in. And thanks for letting us know that we, we made a difference on this. But also what a great thing we picked. I mean, it was, you know, the, the Queen's Gambit. Everybody I know is watching it. And also it's one of those shows that people are watching over and over again right away. Oh, interesting. Felt, you know, Unbelievable was another one. Huh. Did you watch it? I did watch Unbelievable. Yeah. Okay. That's another one where people started watching it right away. That's um, impressive. That's a tough, that's a tough tone to jump right back into, but exactly. Yeah. (laughs) And then the last thing I wanted to talk about the Queen's Gambit that we hadn't discussed is that everybody's talking about season two, season two, season two. Is there a season two? No. He wrote one book. Yeah. They did this with Big Little Lies. Mm-hmm. Big Little Lies, huge success. What do they do? They take it to season two, which in my mind was nowhere near the same level as season one. I only got they a couple of episodes into season two. I couldn't do it. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes more is just more. It's not better. And I don't yeah. know why you move on to another great book and make, make another great series, but why you want to keep going with this story and they were like oh they left the storyline open at the end no they didn't in queen's gambit no they ended on a happy note for her she finally found peace she was able to just play and also it was a wrap she won there's no pinnacle higher there's no more (laughs) over and out Yeah. yeah exactly Anyway, so I wanted to address that, that everybody on the boards are all talking about whether there should be a season two. So my vote is no. Your vote is? My vote is there shouldn't be, but my vote is also there's certainly money in making season two. So that, you know, who knows? They might. (laughs) By the way, they've done it before. Many, many, many times. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. Now this week we're going to talk about, it's such a good time to do it because we're podcasting actually we're taping on sunday the presidential election's over and president-elect is joe biden i don't think it's any secret to anybody who listens that both you and i were not trump supporters what um who would think that (laughs) i don't know i can't thank god for a new day in america (laughs) (laughs) you know i'm right with you as you know but here's the thing we know that the social media platforms made such a difference in the trajectory of Trump, both in 2016 and through the four years in which he's lived. Mm-hmm. His entire media has been based on his Twitter account, yes. which I don't, I don't really want to discuss. And frankly, I don't want to give him any more space in my brain than he's already had these four years. So to be reviewing this right now is such a, it's just so perfect. So The Social Dilemma is a documentary that was done where they've interviewed a lot of people who were instrumental in building the platforms, Google, Facebook, platforms that they are now coming forward and saying are ruining our lives, truly ruining our lives. Do you want to add anything to that? I think these are all people out of Silicon Valley who went into this business of social media, anticipating that they were going to have a great effect uh, and be able to bring people together across the world, which they certainly did. And then they didn't anticipate the negative ways in which these platforms could be used. And now we're seeing that. We're seeing that once these ideas become monetized, which every single one of these platforms has gone through over the past 20 years, you know, Facebook started in 2004, but didn't become an IPO until the last couple of years. Once that becomes publicly monetized, you've got to figure out what the product is. And if you're not paying for it, you're the product. And I think they did a beautiful job. I realized in watching it, it didn't teach me anything I didn't already know. Here's the thing, though. They start with the premise. Social media is bad. 
And then they do an admirable job mm -hmm. in terms of building that foundation to take you there. Yeah. Personally, I am not one. It, it's funny because I'm the one who suggested that we talk about this documentary, but I'm truly generally not one to want to wade into the documentary world. I'm very wary of documentary. I think for the most part, if you're not going in to learn when you're making a documentary, you're doing it wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you've come out on the other side of having made a documentary with the exact message you went in trying to support, you've done something wrong. Well, I think it's better when you're just documenting action and you really don't have an outcome opinion. Right. That's when the great documentaries take place. But Jeff Orlowski is the documentarian that did this. And it's because he had a couple of friends who are part of this mm. documentary, which by the way, I think should be stated before you have to start going somewhere else to read about it. I think that should be announced. When the documentarian is close friends, went to college with some of the people that he's documenting. It's not mentioned. I think that's problematic. Okay. But anyway, he also did, just so people can, you know, be updated. He's known for Chasing Coral in 2017, yeah. where he really went around. And that was really good because he really was documenting the destruction of coral in the reefs and how serious it is. Okay. And then Chasing Ice, which is also about ice. So he's very climate- Oriented. I'm a so little surprised this title wasn't chasing social media. Exactly. <laughs> I know what's funny. I, that's, that's exactly what I thought. But also we know that his point of view is always going to be slanted to a leftist point of view because that, that's what clearly what interests him. So, I don't actually do mind we, that so much. I do mind that this clearly went in with an agenda. It did, yeah. But I do think it's an important conversation. We need to be talking oh, about scary. this. scary. Uh, you know, whatever his agenda scared the shit out of me. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a bigger problem with it with people like Michael Moore. I really like Michael Moore. I don't particularly love his movies. Um, I think they're a bit misleading. When I went to see Fahrenheit 9-11, there's a scene in there where he's talking to like the one forest ranger who kind of quote unquote protects the entire Oregon coast. And I was like, that would be the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard protects the Oregon coast, but cool. And that's the kind of thing that really rubs me the wrong way in documentary. I think they did a good job of acknowledging that most of these companies didn't start trying to take over the world, right? They, there's certainly an opportunity there. Google certainly has grown to that. Amazon has certainly grown to that. Facebook has certainly grown to that. But well, I, you know, in, fa in Facebook, Zuckerberg started out he just wanted to be a cool guy on campus and take over the girls. Well, I saw yeah. the social network as well. I still think that that film was robbed by the King's speech for best director and best movie, but that's fine. We'll talk about that another time. Uh <laughs> yeah. the, great, the great Aaron Sorkin shows up again. Well, but here's the thing. When you're watching this film, basically what they lay out, and I mean, there are some, some people that are more entertaining to watch in this film mm -hmm. than others, because it's very dry. I did not watch it in one sitting, which I normally do. Oh. I watched it, you know, in 10, 15 minute increments because it was just too, okay, you're saying the same thing. It's just a different platform. And basically, oh, interesting. Yeah. Basically, the overall premise, though, is that you're not aware of how the platforms are manipulating you. Mm -hmm. And in addition to not being aware of it, you're also not aware of how much information they have about you. Now I, you know, full disclosure says, you know, I own Blue Shoe Strategy. We started that in 1993 and we're social media specialists. You know, I was uh, one of the people working on the Barack Obama 2008 social media approach. So, I mean, I, I go back a long way in this. So I feel like I can speak to a couple of things. 
And I tell my friends and family, if you go into social media thinking you have privacy, then shame on you. Because you have to go in understanding that anything you put out there, anything you click on, anything at all that you do online belongs to someone else. Absolutely. And so don't do anything that you don't want to be in the front page of the New York Times. I tell that to everybody. So I don't think that should be such a chilling surprise the way he seems to make it. Number two, and I can't wait to hear your thoughts, especially on number two. Number two that is so interesting to me is I don't understand why they think the government should protect you when you're the one in control of what you do in Mm. there. That's like saying, okay, I know that if I drink an entire bottle of vodka, I know I'm out of control. In fact, I could die. In fact, I could kill someone else if I get a car. I still get to buy that bottle of vodka because I know what it produces. You know, maybe there should be better information about here's what's happening to you when you're on social media. Mm. But to say the government should control it, I, it's just complicated, you know? I would say that I am a bleeding heart liberal and I absolutely think that the government should <laughs> interfere in how social media is affecting our everyday lives. And not in a sense of, you know, you're limited in your screen time or for me, it's a lot more about how, how they trap you within the rabbit hole that they're trying to, your attention is what they're selling, right? And they're making money off of you. You are opting into this, certainly. And all of Silicon Valley is now an opt out application, right? Everything you choose to put on your phone, you're agreeing to their terms and conditions. Nobody reads the terms and conditions. Well, that's not their fault that you don't read it. Sure, it's not their fault, but it is, they do make it 100 pages long. And it's become part of our world where people certainly feel that they're missing out if they're not a part of it, right? And that's, again, not the company's fault. But when the companies are influential within the society to the point that they are pushing elections in one direction or another or fueling genocide in certain parts of the world, yes, I think that's the point at which government should be regulating, right? These are certainly First Amendment conversations that we need to be having, but considering how much damage social media has done, and this is not to negate the good that they've done. Certainly a lot of people have come together that lost touch. I think you and my father are two of them, right? Through social media. But I think that we are paying too high a price for that. And at some point they need to be regulated within certain limits, right? Television is limited. Within You can only, you know... <laughs> I was using this example recently that somebody, some, I believe, and you know, t- take this with a grain of salt because I haven't, I truly have not done my research on it, but I believe that Fox News was sued about the Tucker Carlson show because of their lack of concern over coronavirus and how they were handling it on the show. And so they were held accountable, they were taken to court, and they ended up winning their lawsuit because they said that no person in their right mind would take Tucker Carlson as a news source. Right, well, they they did say that, and they did win for them. But at the same time, I have written a lot. I do a lot of public speaking. People ask me a lot because I've been in this industry so deeply. I've sat at the table with the top people at Facebook and argued about what I want from them, what Mm what the buys in Facebook should be, et cetera. I think what we have to do in this documentary is go to what these people said. So I'm going to start with, because 
your point of view, it's interesting, and I'm glad we're sort of not on the same fence on this. I just feel like we should not be absolved of our own responsibility for what we take in and how we vet it. Now, when my friends put up something on Facebook that I go to Snopes and it's not accurate, like there was something recently, actually, where there was a picture of Catherine Hepburn and this great story about her dad and her took her to to the circus and the people in front of them didn't have enough money. So they didn't go to the circus and her dad taught her that it was better to give than to receive the circus. Okay. And everyone was clicking on it. Well, it wasn't true. Mm -hmm. It's a true story that was told somewhere else, but it had nothing to do with Catherine Hepburn. Okay. It's my job before I repost that to go look it up to see if it's true. Mm -hmm. The fact, you know, if we don't teach Americans to take responsibility for what you click on, what you post, what you share, then shame on us because I am responsible for the actions that I perform off the computer. Why shouldn't I be responsible for the actions I perform on the computer? Well, my question here is at what point do we call that? Because obviously there are algorithms and logarithms, and I don't know the difference between the two because I'm really bad at math, uh, (laughs) that are getting us and this is one of the things that I think the movie does well though I'm I'm not a fan of the dramatization of it though I do like the actors that are involved in it I didn't think it was necessary of how they dramatize you know this rabbit hole that we get pulled down in and there is an effect that's happening right there are kids all over Europe who are being trapped by ISIS who are now in Syria because they fell into the social network trappings of an extremist unit who knows how to utilize these platforms in a way that traps you that gets you put into a certain mindset. And at what point do we say that's free speech, right? That's what you get. And believe me, I'm super liberal. I absolutely believe in the, in the right of free speech. I'm Jewish, right? If Nazis want to protest outside my synagogue, that's actually their right. Do I hope that the police comes and pushes them onto public property? Absolutely. But I think that this well, is... My, yeah. My friend Arya Nair defended the Nazis' rights to yeah. march in Skokie. So the social dilemma doesn't really give the other side of the debate in terms of what should be allowed and what shouldn't. But let's talk about what it does give us and why I think it's worth seeing. So Justin Rosenstein is a former engineer at Facebook. And here's what he says in the film. We are more profitable to a corporation if we're spending time staring at a screen, staring at an ad, than if we're spending time living our life in a rich way. Now, by the way, define rich way. You know, maybe that is what somebody thinks is a rich way. And so we're seeing the results of that. We're seeing corporations using powerful artificial intelligence to outsmart us and figure out how to pull our attention toward the things they want us to look at rather than the things that are most consistent with our goals and our values and our lives. So pretty much the whole documentary, I thought that encapsulates what you're going to learn if you watch this is how the corporations, the advertisers, and the platforms, because they're there to make money, how they're uh, manipulating us in social media. Would you agree that that's really what this movie is laying out? Yeah, I think ultimately the movie is telling you if you're not paying for something, you're the product, right? And so what they're selling is your attention, the, the amount of time that you will spend watching an ad or on their site as a whole, right? Google had an interesting approach when they first started that they wanted you to spend as little time as possible on their website. 
right? That was their claim to fame was that you would get your result and then you'd be off to where you wanted to go. I don't know that that's still Google's, especially with Gmail. I, I think we're all certainly spending a lot of time on Google and they've certainly changed how they approach that. But with Facebook, I know, and Twitter, absolutely, that your attention is what they are selling. Well, if you look at Google, what you just said about Google, Google was started by a bunch of guys at, I think it's UCLA's basement. Once the internet started to have a ton of information, we're talking like 1994 now, I remember this happening. There was so much information there, they needed an index for that information to be able to access it quickly and efficiently. So they wrote the program of Google. So it was never about monetization. It was actually owned at that point by, and I'm not sure UCLA is the right college, but at any rate, it was owned by the college. And so it didn't become monetization until all of a sudden you could see how how that would be true so mm-hmm. basically it's like all things you know whenever there's money there's always some sort of yin yang conversation going on sure. but this film do you think people should watch this documentary or do you absolutely okay so what are the two reasons elizabeth you would encourage somebody to take the time to to watch it i don't know that all of us are cognizant of what our presence on social media means other than what it does for our own personal information and enjoyment. And I think it's important that we all understand who's on the other side of that screen and what is happening with our information on the other side of that screen. And this film will certainly tell you how your clicks are interpreted, how they're trying to feed essentially what is an addiction and how to keep you involved in that addiction and immersed in that addiction. I so agree that the reason I think everyone should see this film is because if you're an educated consumer, so you can really truly understand how they're using you, then Mm -hmm. you will be able to decide for yourself whether you want to be used that way or not. Because I think once you understand the process, which they really lay out beautifully, Mm -hmm. then you will no longer have the need. So, Well, I think that's funny because actually everyone who's interviewed in the movie talks about how they're susceptible to it. They all know how it works. They programmed it and they're still susceptible to it and they have to monitor their own use. But they also, once you know about it, yes, monitorization, but that's true. If you didn't know what vodka did to you, you'd have to monitor. And then all of a sudden, once you learn that the alcohol level is going to make you be X, Y, and Z, then you monitor it. You know, knowledge is power. And so, but sure, but the power in my mind lies with the consumer. So I guess I disagree just a bit because I think that these corporations have done as much in their power to keep that from the consumer, right? They don't want us knowing what they're doing with our data. Yeah. Well, and that's another that I think the, the movie will help you understand is how they're monetizing you, even though you're not monetizing you. Well, (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's true, right? <laughs> that's true. But again, how they're monetizing us, I totally agree with what you're saying. And I th- again, I come down to the same thing I tell people I work with and my clients, et cetera, et cetera. Anytime you're on the internet, you should know that whatever information you're putting out, they're going to try to use it to make money. Once you know that, then you have to click more carefully, you know? Sure. I just don't know how many people know that. Well, that's why that's they why should all watch, watch this movie, right? Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. I do. I just also think we need, you know, someone in Washington 
taking a look at what's happening with all this information and seeing if there's a way that we can maybe even the playing field a little bit more. Well, I would love to revisit this at another time. We've got to wrap this up because we've finished, we're out of time already. But I do recommend The Social Dilemma because I do think an, an educated consumer is your best customer, you know? So be an educated consumer and know that you're consuming every time you go online on any social media platform. If that's, if the one lesson from The Social Dilemma comes from that and know that when you start watching it, it's a tough burn. It's not, this is not entertainment. You know, <laughs> like, uh, yeah. I mean, I think they did their best yeah. with a narrative in the center of it that's acted out that kind of takes you down the rabbit hole of someone turning into what did they call it? The extreme center. Yeah, exactly. Cracked me up. Yeah. And that was fine. But I think we all owe ourselves more. I agree. And watching this film and, and taking away the lessons that they're trying to teach us. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Really appreciate it. And we'll all see you next week or speak to you next week anyway. So thanks, Liz. Thanks. Thanks.